Well, good morning, 1115. How are you guys doing this morning? Yeah. God's doing well. Guys are looking good this morning. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're looking good. Now turn to the person you didn't think was looking good and say, uh, I guess you're all right. I'm just kidding. It's kind of messed up. But uh, hey, we're glad that you're here with us. My name is TJ. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 29, Genesis chapter 29, I'm kind of freaking out right now. My heart's beating pretty fast. I, I didn't think I was going to make it here back to this campus this morning. So uh, I think Susie was going to have to preach and it was going to be, it's going to be an interesting day for you guys. So um, luckily made it back here. But um, we're in this series called Freeway and we've been in it over the last four weeks. This is our fifth week and this has been an incredible incredible series. I, I know that it's in, do, we're doing this in conjunction with our connect group, so it's not only about what's happening here on Sunday morning, but it's, what's about, it's about what's happening throughout the week, and I, I've just been hearing stories upon stories of people's lives that are just like, man, I'm discovering so much about what God is trying to do inside of me and how he wants to free me from some of these things, and listen, if you walked in here today uh, for the first time, welcome. We're glad that you're here, but I just want to give you a heads up. Today is going to be kind of like you walked into a movie about halfway through it. And so it might be like, whoa, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't want to speak to you today. That God doesn't want to speak to your circumstance, speak to your life and what you're going through. Um, but as we begin, I want to do a quick little review of the last couple of weeks, just so we can catch some of you guys up that maybe missed a week. And for those of you that are here with us for the very first time, uh, so you can get kind of an idea of where we've been. And this freeway series is all about these six steps. Uh, they're going to be go up here on the screen at any moment. And so the first step was awareness, and then there's just go ahead and put all of them up. Yeah, discovery, ownership, forgiveness, acceptance, and freedom. And so the first week we talked about awareness. And we said that in order for us to really be aware of our life, we got to start looking at our life. And we started talking about if we're going to have awareness increase in our life, then hurry has to decrease. And we're not talking about the external things because we live in a busy society we live in where there's lots of different things going on, but we said it's not about what's happening outside, it's about what's happening inside. And when we can't calm our hearts and we can't calm our spirits to the point where we can hear from God any longer, and so we said we've got to decrease that hurry that's going on in our life so our awareness can increase. And in that, we said the truth about all of us is, is that we don't know the truth about us. That's the unfortunate thing about all of us is as much as we want to know the truth, we don't really have the truth on us. We're missing some of those things. And we said as we start to become more aware, we're going to move to step two, which is discovery, where we're going to start to see some of the hurts and some of the pains and, and some of the things that we've suppressed in life. And we said while we're in this discovery process, we're going to have some choices. We're going to have the choice of we can totally ignore the things that we're discovering and act like they're not there. We can choose to blame other people for our circumstances, and we can just put the blame game on full effect, or we can continue and move on to step three, which is this whole idea of ownership. It's this whole idea of ownership where we say, this is my life, and I'm going to own my life. And while some of the things that have happened to you and some of the things that have happened to me might not be my fault, the abuse that happened in my life was not my fault, the abuse that happened in your life was not your fault, while things might not be your fault, your life is your responsibility. And we've all got to take ownership of our lives because it's our life to live, and nobody else can live it for us. And then last week, we talked about 
forgiveness. And we said the pathway to freedom always goes through the door of forgiveness. And last week, a lot of people uh, took the step of forgiving some people that they've been holding on to some bitterness with and said, you know what, I'm going to put the stone down in my life. And then others of us, we've been just carrying this burden and this, this, this stuff in our life where we can't forgive ourselves and it's just becoming really, really heavy. And some of you all chose to put that down. And that was an important step in our process. And we talked about the fact that we don't always forgive somebody for their sake, but most of the time we forgive for our sake so we can be whole and so we can be well and so that we can truly experience freedom. And today we're going to talk about acceptance. And this is really about us understanding our identity. It's really about us really grabbing hold of our identity. And the way I want to explain this is I want to tell a story uh, today. And so this story is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, um, partly because it's one of the most messed up stories in the Bible. And anytime people are more messed up than me, it makes me feel better, so I enjoy reading those. Anybody else with me? Like, I like other people screw up, so I feel better about myself. I know it's not very Christian-like, but it is very human, okay? And so maybe some of y'all can re relate. For the rest of you guys that are acting holy right now, stop it. Listen, we know you're sinners. We know you're jagged up. We know you're messed up, so try stop trying to play us. Pull off the facade. Let's be real. Let's be authentic. Because here's the deal. When you start looking at your family and you start realizing how jacked up and how messed up they are, and you're like, how in the world did I end up in this mess? All you got to do is open up your Bible and read about their families, and you start feeling really good about yours. You're like, we're not so bad. Crazy Uncle Eddie. He's pretty sane compared to that guy. That guy was like killing and murdering people. He just says weird stuff. And so like this can give you a lot of hope. And uh and so they're struggling through some stuff, and this story is found in the book of Genesis, and it's the story of Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, and they end up getting married, and their life and their children's lives, I mean, we could tell hundreds of sermons based on this family, because they just got so much craziness, they have so many problems, I mean, they make so many poor decisions that it's like, here is the recipe for how to screw up your life, just read their life, and then do everything opposite of what they did, and so, but we're not going to focus on that, we're going to focus on, on they had two sons, and their sons' names were Esau and Jacob, and Esau was the older son, he was born like a minute before they said when he came out, his younger brother Jacob was holding onto his heel trying to pull him back in the womb. It's pretty crazy. There was some tension there in the womb. There was tension outside the womb. And because Esau was the older son, he got some things that the younger son didn't get. And in the, that time, the oldest son would always get the birthright, which meant that he got all the family's wealth and he got all the family's power which is something that a lot of us are after today. We're after wealth and we're after power. And so because he was born first, he got these things. And on top of that, because he was born first and he was a very manly man, he was loved and adored by his father. Like Jacob absolutely, or Isaac absolutely loved Esau. I mean, he was his favorite. He, he thought he was the cat's meow. He was all that in a bag of chips with the guacamole dip. I mean, he just had it going on. His dad and him, they were tight. And then uh, Jacob actually didn't have a very good relationship with his father. In fact, he had a very poor relationship with his father. He was constantly longing for his father's attention, never got it. So he ended up with a very, very odd relationship with his mother. In fact, he had a pretty uh, codependent relationship with his mother. He would be what I would call a mama's boy. 
And uh, like he was always with his mom. His mom was his protector. His mom was his life. And so because of that, there was this constant tension between them, between the older brother and the younger brother. Well, one day, Jacob deceives Esau, his older brother, and tricks him into giving him his birthright, which it means that all of a sudden Esau lost his right to all the money and the power, and Jacob all of a sudden has the right to money and power. And I don't know about you, but I had some older siblings that were stepbrothers and stuff, and anytime I tricked my siblings, you know what that meant? That meant that my siblings were to come and kick the crap out of me. That's what that meant. And so basically that's what Esau threatens Jacob with. He threatens his life and vows to kill him. And just like any other younger brother and myself, what all of us do in that situation when we're threatened with death is we run, right? We run away. And Jacob takes off and he runs to his mother's uncle named Laban. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story. Jacob is living with Laban. He's ran away from home. And this is what it says in Genesis chapter 29, 16 through 20. It says, now Laban had two daughters. The, the name of the older was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. Okay, now anytime the Bible is describing people and the best description the Bible can come up for you with is, is you have weak eyes. How many of y'all know that means that that person is butt ugly? <laughs> Listen, the best thing you have going for you is the fact that you're blind. That's not good news from an attraction standpoint. Because look at what it says about Rachel. It says, Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And so you see the comparison. And listen, don't send me an email saying, like, what are you doing saying people are ugly? That's the Bible story. That's not my story. Bible. TJ. Bible. It's their story. She was hit with the ugly stick. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. And so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Now, all, all the women should go like, oh, like that is so romantic, isn't it? Like he worked seven years, but it only seemed like days. That is so sweet. Jacob, he, he is so romantic. In fact, if we were to take this and we were to make a moving out of this, like it would be one of those chick flick bestsellers. And, and Jacob would be played by Ryan Gosling and he'd walk up and he'd be like, hey girl, I'll work seven years for you, but it only seemed like days. And then vampires would come in and he would kill them and it'd be... Like Hollywood blockbuster. And we think, man, that, that dude is romantic. Listen, that's not romantic. That's sick. Like, I'm just going to tell you, like, he's got some issues. Everybody say, issues. No, I said, issues. Well, get some attitude in that. Come on. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. Where's all the single guys at? Single guys, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Raise them up high. Raise them up high. Single ladies, look around. These are your options. Okay. <laughs> now, all you single guys, let me give you some advice right here. Okay. This, this is free. This is just from your pastor. 
At some point, you're going to find that special lady. And she's going to be incredible, and you're going to want to marry her, and you're going to do the God-honoring thing, and you're going to go ask her father for her hand. This line right here is what you never say to him. <laughs> Give her to me. Brown chicken, brown cow. Brown chicken, brown, brown. You know, like that is not... I just promise you that is not going to go well. What you have here is you have Jacob who is this young guy who's more than in love. He has fixed all of his, the longings of his heart for meaning and for satisfaction and for his purpose and for his identity all in this one girl. All in this one relationship. And you've got to ask yourself, like, why in the world would he be so obsessed with this relationship? And if you were to look at his story and know anything about his life, you would see that his life is really, really empty. For most of his life, he's longed and worked and strived for his father's love and adoration, and he's never gotten it. And some of you know exactly what that is like. Because for some of you, you've longed for your father's attention. You've longed for his love. And no matter how hard you work for it, it just never seems to re be reciprocated to you. And that right there, honestly, will drive you to all kinds of un healthy choices in your life and so he's got that aspect going on then he's got that weird codependent relationship with his mom going on then he's got a brother who absolutely hates him and wants to kill him and so you've got all this going on and then you look at the time that he was living in and their theology of God what they believed about God they believed that um if life was going really well and you were successful in your business and you were successful in your relationships and you, you were achieving in life, then, then God was with you. Like God was looking at your life favor, favorably and that he loved you. But on the flip side of that, if things were not going well and you weren't being successful and you weren't achieving all the things that you were achieving and you weren't find the, finding the fulfillment that you were looking for or your life was falling apart, then the assumption was is that God doesn't really know me or God doesn't really love me in life. And so Jacob's got all of this emptiness inside. And he thinks, man, if I could just get this one girl, if I could just have this one relationship, it would fix all of the emptiness, all of the brokenness, all of the desires, all of the acceptance issues, all of the love that I've been missing. Like it would make me whole and it would make me complete. And this is where he's going and this is what he's moving towards. And Laban, Laban gets this. Like he sees that there's something really, really unhealthy about Jacob. And he says, man, I'm going to use that to my advantage. And this is what he does in verse 22. It says, so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah. This is the same ugly stick, got hit with it, Leah. And he brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. 
So Jacob said to Laban, what is it that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Like, you know that that was a crazy wedding when he got to bed and he didn't realize who he was sleeping with, okay? That is a bad day. Like, that is not a memorable wedding. That's a forgettable wedding. And if you know this story, he ends up working another seven years. Some of y'all ladies are thinking, oh, that is really romantic now. It's not. Seven more years to marry Rachel. He's got Leah, marries Rachel, and he thinks at the end of that, everything is going to be great. And let me just tell you, it's a disaster. It is an absolute disaster because he's fixed all of his meaning, all of his purpose, all of his love on this one woman. And I love what one of the commentators uh, of, of this passage, he says, this whole story is a miniature of our disillusionment for no matter what we put our hopes in, in the morning, it's always Leah, never Rachel. Such a powerful little statement right there because there's so much truth to it. No matter what we put our hopes in, it's never enough. We think that it's going to complete us. We think it's going to give us our identity. We think it's going to give us our worth. And then one day you wake up and you realize this isn't anything that I thought it was going to be. And this is a man that's driven by fear. This is a man that's driven by insecurity. This is a man that's driven by a false sense of identity. And honestly, that's what a lot of us are driven by. It's this false sense of identity that says I'm not worthy. And it says that I'm not accepted and I'm not somebody and because we're saying all that to ourselves, well, all of a sudden, that same thought process bleeds over into our faith with God. Because it just doesn't impact the relationships that we can see. It impacts the relationships that we can't see. See, it's now, it's not just that you weren't enough for your dad, or it's now, it's not that you just weren't enough for your spouse, or now it's not that just that you weren't enough for your friends, all of a sudden, you start to think, well, I'm not enough for God, and there's no way that he could accept me and love me the way that I am. And honestly, I'm probably pretty sure, just like all of my friends and my, that spouse and my parents are disappointed in me, I bet you God is disappointed in me too. Because not only when you're insecure and you live with fear, do you not measure up to the expectations of other people? You put in your mind that you'll never, ever measure up to God's expectations. And this is pretty depressing right now. But here is the hope for all of this. And I put it in your outline, and, and this is the bottom line for all this. For every single one of us, for you, for me, for every single man, woman, and child, youth, whatever you are sitting in here, it's this, is I am not defined by my works or others' labels, but by God's love. You're not defined by what you can accomplish in this life or what somebody says you are. The only thing that defines your worth is God's love. It's God's love. Last week, 
uh, at church was a, was a pretty incredible week. We tried something we've never done before. Um, we, we actually did a, a video message across all of our campuses, and so every single service was a video, and we thought for sure that that was going to fail miserably, or at least I thought for sure that that was going to fail miserably, but I just thought for kicks and giggles, I want to try it uh, just to see what it's like, and, and what happened last week is, is we had nine people make a first-time decision to receive the forgiveness of Christ that he gave on the cross and, ha- and begin a brand new relationship with God. Come on, let's give it up. Like, that's an incredible thing. Watching a video, which we've never done before, non-people gave their lives to Jesus. And then on top of that, hundreds of people took rocks and said, you know what, I've been harboring unforgiveness, and I'm going to lay down the stone. I'm not going to throw it at anyone any longer. And then the others of you that have been carrying the weight of not being able to forgive yourself came down to crosses and, and different things and said, I'm going to give this over to God, and I'm going to walk with him. Incredible thing. And I've been thinking about that this entire week. And I've been thinking about if, if I could sit down with every single person that, that made a decision for Christ and, and talk about what does that decision mean and how do you fully walk out this idea of forgiveness and, and what is your next step in your journey of faith with Jesus. And then if I could talk to you about probably the 80% of us that in all reality with myself included, we have some identity issues when it comes to our relationship with God and how we see ourselves and how God sees us. If I could talk to you, if I could sit down with you, I would, I would want to have this conversation. And I'm going to draw today because I know I'm like Picasso and you guys, you guys think that my art is amazing. And so this is what I would do is I would start with the cross. Okay, that's a cross, just in case you were wondering. Uh, and so what I would say is, is that, man, we all start here. We all get to this place in life where we realize that my best is not good enough, and so we realize that we need the grace of Jesus Christ. And when we receive that grace, we receive forgiveness, and it's a game changer for us. And then what happens is we want to follow God. And so we start journeying down this path of following God, and somewhere along the way, there are two roads that we can take when it comes to following God. One of the roads is this idea of pleasing God, and the other road is this idea of trusting God. Road one and road two. And, and you look at these and, and, and you go, well, I, I kind of want to do both of those, but what you'll see is, is that a lot of us, the tendency is, is we're living by the grace of God, and all of a sudden we start saying, you know what, I want to please God. Like, pleasing God is a, is a big deal because what that means is basically I'm working on my sin. We call this sin management. Anybody ever heard of that? Or we call it in modern times, we call it behavior modification. Like I need to modify my behavior because Jesus paid my price, but now I need to change. And like I need to use all of my effort and all of my ability and all of my skills. And I'm going to do whatever I can to be good. And as good as I can be is going to please God. And we continually try to be good. But the problem is, is our good is never good enough. How many of you guys have found that out in your life? If you're married, you found that out. Like, like we fall short. Like, I, I was doing good, and then I fell short. Well, the same thing, like, I'm trying to please my spouse. Well, we go into that, and we try to please God, and we're working really hard. And the problem with pleasing God is we forget somewhere along the way about the grace of God that was found at the cross 
And we're living by our skills and our abilities and our effort and our talent and our talent and our skills and our abilities and our effort is never enough because the grace of God is what saved us, but the grace of God is also the thing that sustains us. And we can't ever please God without God's grace evident in our life. And so the other road is trusting God. It's where we say, man, I'm trusting God with my sin. I'm trusting God with my past, my present, and my future. No matter where I am, I'm putting it all in his hands, and I'm not trying to earn my way there. I'm following my way there. There's two distinct differences, and and it's hard for us because trusting God, it doesn't sound very heroic, and it doesn't sound very Christ-like. Like, me changing sounds way more Christ-like. Me being good sounds way more Christ-like. But this is what I found. As, as hard as I try, it's never good enough. And the majority of us, what we do is we start going down this road of following God, and we have the choice of trusting or pleasing. And the majority of us go towards, man, I'm going to please God. And I'm going to make things happen. And it just never, we feel like a failure in our relationship. We feel like that we're never good enough for God. Because we can never measure up to perfection, which is where he set Jesus. And I've just found in my own life that when my motivation moves to trusting God, I find that God is really pleased with my life. In fact, I, I put this in your outline like this. Pleasing God is a byproduct of trusting God. It's a byproduct. The only way you can get pleasing is by trusting. You can't ever please and then trust. Like trust never comes because you're pleasing. It only comes because, pleasing only comes because you're trusting. And I think that there's some specific reasons why we drift back to pleasing God. I think one of them is, is because deep down inside, every single one of us have this desire to be loved. I don't care if you're 10 years old or you're 100 years old. I don't care if you make $1,000 a month or $10,000 a month. All of us have this desire to be loved. It doesn't matter where we're at in our life, we all have that desire. And the second thing that I think that causes us to please God, and this is kind of the part that complicates things, is that deep down inside, I think that a lot of us are really, really convinced that God's love for us is conditional and it's limited. We think that God has all these conditions and all these limiters on his love with, for us. And we're not the first people to struggle with this. In fact, Paul is talking to people in the, the book of Galatians, to people that are dealing with this exact same thing. And in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 18, it says this, We Jews know that we have no advantage of birth over non-Jewish sinners. We know very well that we are not set right with God by rule-keeping, but only through personal faith 
in Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to stop right here because this is really important because there's, you see the two paths right here. You see, we are not set right with God by rule keeping. What's that? What path is that? That's path number one. Man, I'm trying to please God by keeping all the rules. The second path is, is, is that it's through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Faith equals trusting. And so you see the two paths right there. And he says, how do we know? We tried it, and we had the very best system of rules the world has ever seen. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement. Some of us have been trying to improve ourselves all of our life. As much self-improvement as we try is never going to please God. The only thing that's going to please God is trusting him. We believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah. Not by trying to be good. Have some of you noticed that we're not yet perfect? Anybody notice that? Yeah, no great surprise, he says. And are you ready to make the accusation that since people like me who go through Christ in order to get things right with God aren't perfectly virtuous, Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin. This accusation is frivolous. If I was trying to be good, I would be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down and I would be acting as a charlatan. This is so key because what it's saying is, is that for a lot of us before Christ, we're all set on trying to please. We're trying to be people pleasers. We're trying to be God pleasers. We're trying to live this perfect life. And as hard as we try, we never yet get to that perfection. We can set up all the rules. We can try to follow all the regulations. But we always seem to fall short in those moments. And then all of a sudden what happens is, is we have the revelation of what Christ did on the cross. And it's a game changer. And we say, man, God, I can't do this without you. I'm putting my full faith and my full trust in you. And then what happens is, is after we start trusting Christ for a while and we're fully trusting him, what we do is we go back to the old behavior of trying to rebuild what we already found out we couldn't build in the first place. And it's this vicious cycle of trying to please God through our actions rather than trust God and finding out that he's pleased as we trust him. And if we can get this, if we can grasp this, this will change the way you think about your Christian life. It'll think about everything because when, we're, when we have this great longing inside of us to please God, when that is the longing of our heart to please him, like, I just want to please God. And that sounds really good and really spiritual. The problem with this heart that goes, man, I just want this to be my primary motivation, is, is that every time you are trying to just please God, is going to imprison your heart. Because you're living for something rather than from someone. In fact, I put it in your notes like this. Living for acceptance and love is slavery. Living from acceptance and love is freedom. See, when we're living for something, we're always trying to strive and we're always trying to attain. But when we're living from something, like it is our source, not us trying to get to the source. Now, we've only got a couple minutes left, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of skip ahead. There's, there's three verses I really want you guys to grab hold of today, and I'll put them in your outline. I, man, if, if you want to understand your identity, these three verses will be so helpful in your walk with God. Um, Colossians 1.27, it says this, 
To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want you to circle three words in there. Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, the Apostle Paul who wrote this, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Do you know how many times in the New Testament Paul actually quotes what Jesus said? Anybody have any clue? Three times. Three times does Paul actually quote Jesus in the New Testament. Do you know how many times he uses the phrase Christ in you or the reverse of it, in Christ? He uses that phrasing over 160 times. That's, that's pretty significant because a lot of people would say, well, are you saying that Paul didn't think the words of Jesus were significant? I think he thought the words of Jesus were significant, but what he found so much more significant than the words of Jesus was the fact that Jesus came and he died and he rose again. And he, as he was ascending into heaven, he said, wait, because I'm going to send you my spirit and my spirit's going to live inside of you. So it wasn't so much about God being there with us. It was now about God living inside of us. And for Paul, that was a game changer. See, there's a big difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, what you saw is God was with you. God was with Moses. God was with uh, the Israelites in the desert. God was with David. God was with the prophets. And then Jesus comes to earth, and Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. And God is with us, and then he dies, and he rises again, and he says, like, listen, I'm not going to be with you, but I'm going to do something even better than being with you. I'm going to put my spirit inside you. And I hear people go, man, I just wish, like, my faith would be helped so much like the early church if, if I just got to walk around and hang out with Jesus. Why? Because you could have Jesus with you, or you could be living with Jesus inside of you today, and that is a freaking game changer for you. Because you don't have to have him just following around him. He's living and breathing and echoing inside of you, trying to get you to understand who you are and what he wants to do through your life. And that can change your life if you get it, because that is the hope of glory. <laughs> Golf clap, yeah. Second verse. 1 John 4, 13 through 16, says this. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. Going back to that same thing. He has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God is in them. I want you to circle a couple words in this verse. It's the verse it's the words we know and rely on the love of God. Circle those words right there. Cuz he's he's putting a distinction there. And if I were to ask you, do you know that God loves you? The majority of you would go, "Yeah, I, I believe that God loves me." I, like if we were to do a raise of hands, even though there's some of you that won't raise your hands for anything, like you would probably raise your hands and go, "I believe that God loves me." But the better question is, isn't, does God love me? The better question is, is, are you relying on God's love for everything in your life? Are you relying on his love, trusting in him for every single thing? Is he at the center of everything that you do? 
See, the problem is, is most of us were taught that God would love us if and when we change. But the truth is that God loves you and me so that we can change in this life. And what Paul is trying to get us to see is that because Christ is in us, that we need to rely on God's love. It's not just enough to say that God loves me. It's that he needs to be the center and the source of everything we put our hope and our trust in. And it's shaping and it's forming every single aspect of our life. Because the fact of the matter is, for most of us, we're not relying on God's love for our life. We're relying on our performance. Or we're relying on that relationship for our significance. Or we're relying on that promotion for our worth. Or we're relying on that car for our value. And instead of relying on those things that never seem to be enough because there's always another car, there's always another person, there's always more money in this life. God says, man, you got to rely on me. And if you rely on my love, it's a game changer. Because my love never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Won't leave you, nor will it ever forsake you. And not only that, but it'll make you whole, and it will make you free. One last verse, Psalms 139, 13 and 14. It says, you create, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. I know this idea isn't new to you that you are created by God. Most of us would go, yeah, God, God created everything. He created the heavens and the earth and the universe. But have you ever asked yourself the question, why does God love you? Why does God love me? Why does he love you? If you never ask yourself that question, that's a great question to ask. You want to know why God loves you? Because you're his. You're his. When he was creating the earth, he said the earth would not be complete without you. That he needed you just as much as he needed the sun, just as much as he needed the waves, just as as much as he needed the trees. He needed you. And I know that some of you guys think, well, man, God might have made an accident. I mean, he did make cats. God doesn't make accidents. You were made on purpose, with a purpose, and for a purpose. You were intentional. This week, Shayla and I were hanging out with uh, Josh, who's the guy that was singing over here, and he's a worship leader at this campus, and his wife, Andrea. And they brought their, their daughter, Ember, out to dinner with us, and and since Shayla wasn't doing a very good job of holding Ember, she was crying. I was like, give me that baby, you know. I don't really touch babies very often. They scare me. I think I can break them. But so I, I, I grab Ember, and I, I find out that she likes bouncing up and down. So I'm like, I can do this all day long until she starts spitting up. But uh, 
just holding this little girl. I'm not very good at ages, but I guess for age, it was four months, right, Josh? Four months? Four months. Something like that. Yeah. We're going to go with four months. And uh, babies have a unique smell. I'm not talking about the poopy diaper smell, but you know that like baby smell. They're soft. They're so innocent. Gotten the opportunity to go to a ton of babies being born at the hospital. And it's always an interesting process talking to, to dads. How many dads are out there? All the dads, raise your hand. Come on, be proud. All the dads out there. Then y'all will know this to be true that uh, every dad that I've talked to, when that baby is born, the first time they hold that baby, there's like this instantaneous connection. Every dad says it like, it makes no sense. I mean, you understand a mom having a connection. Like she's held that thing in her stomach for nine months. She's endured swollen ankles, the pain of birth. Like there's, there's some pain through that process and there's been this, this growing inside of it. And so you understand that connection, but really a dad has done nothing at this point. He contributed a little bit on the front end, and maybe he talked to the stomach. <laughs> maybe sang, read a story, I don't know. But you hold that baby, and it's like, I love this baby. And the thing about that child is that child does nothing for you. Like, in fact, here's what that child does. It poops, it pees, it cries, and it eats, and it sleeps. That's it. The big five. Like, it's not adding to your life. In fact, it's subtracting sleep. And budget. <laughs> but you go, like, why do you love it? And, and, and Josh would go, man, because... She's mine. Like, I helped create her. I was part of the process. Very insignificant, but I was part of it. I started thinking about my parents. And uh, my parents had this, this motto as a kid that whatever our kids are into, we're all in on that. And so I loved sports, and I, so I played everything, and my parents were at everything. I don't ever remember my dad ever missing a practice or a game. I don't know how he did that and worked. I don't even know if he did work, but he was there at everything. I remember my mom had this shirt, and uh, some of you parents, you might want to steal this one. This one's good, okay? She had this shirt that says, some people wait a lifetime to meet their hero. I'm raising mine. And I can remember going to games, and some games I'd play amazing, and my dad would be cheering so loud. He'd be high-fiving me and hugging me and telling me what a great job I did, and then there'd be other games where I'd stink it up. And my dad would be out there cheering so loud, high-fiving and hugging me, telling me that I was doing a great job. In fact, I remember one time I had the worst game in an AAU tournament playing basketball, and I remember my dad came to me. I, I got shut out for points. This dude out-rebounded me like 15 rebounds to two. I, like, it was the worst ever. And I was so disappointed. And I remember my dad came up to me and said, son, it doesn't matter how many rebounds or how many points you score. I'm going to love you because you're mine. 
And you're my favorite because you're mine. And I want to remind some of you here today that you're God's son. I want to remind some of you ladies here today that you're God's daughter. And his love for you is not based on your performance and what you can do and what you can achieve and what you can accomplish. His love for you is based on the fact that you are his. And when you understand that, it changes your identity. It allows you to go through this life knowing that you've been accepted and that you're loved by the creator of the universe. Let's pray. If you guys can bow your head and close your eyes as we get ready to pray. And I was thinking about this moment this week and we live in a society where we're constantly bombarded with the message of what we're not, who we're not. And so today, I just wanted to take a moment and tell you who you are. Not who I think you are, but who God says you are. Straight out of Scripture, and and I wrote some of these things down, and I just want to read it to you as you're in this moment. God says you are accepted. He said you are His child You are his workmanship. You are his friend. You are his vessel. You are his witnesses. You are his ambassador. You are his instrument. You're chosen and you are forgiven. You've been adopted. You are complete in his eyes. You are sanctified. You are loved eternally. You are light. You are a city on a hill. You are secure. You're more than a conqueror. You're healed. You're sheltered. You're constantly on his mind. You're at peace. You are blessed and highly favored. You are God-designed. You are significant. You are loved. In fact, it says you are lavishly loved. You are a child of God. You are accepted. You are his. God, I just pray today that as so many of us have found Christ at some point, and maybe there's some of us that have not found Christ in here, and we've lived out of this idea that if we're good enough, we're smart enough, we're strong enough, we complete enough, then maybe if we do that well enough, we can please you. And the problem with living a life out of that mindset and that path is that we always lose. That we're not living out of the grace that sustains us. And God, I pray that today we would make a choice not to live based on trying to please you, but God, we would live a life that's fully intended on trusting you. Trusting that Christ is in us that we're relying on your love that will never leave us and never will forsake us, that we are your child. And I just pray right now for every person in here that, God, that we would accept, that we would recognize that we are a child of the King. 
that we aren't a bastard of this world, but we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a generation that's set apart. And that God, when we discover that, that we don't have to live with the labels that other people have put on us any longer. We don't have to live by our accomplishments and our striving, but we can live in your love. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Now there's some of you out there today that you've never made a decision for Jesus and you know what, I, I believe that there's something inside of you right now that's kind of going on and you're like, man, I don't know what that is. I'll, I'll tell you what that is. That's God tugging on your heart. And I don't want you to miss this moment, this, this opportunity to, to recognize that there is a God that loves you, that he sent his son to die so that you could have this life, that you could be a son and a daughter as well, that you wouldn't have to live for striving, but you could live in trusting. And so if that's you out there today, I, I just want to pray a prayer with you. And if you just prayed in your heart as I prayed out loud, it'd be amazing. And it goes like this, God, I give you my life. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross. He lived a sinless life and I've sinned, which basically means I've made mistakes. I've messed up. Would you forgive me today? Come into my heart. Be the center of my life. I accept your love. I accept your forgiveness. I accept your grace today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.